Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It is great to be back home with you this morning. I bring you greetings from Salem Tabernacle back in New York, where I preached for them last Sunday. And uh, be encouraged to know that you have a a crazy group of cohorts on the East Coast that uh, think very much along the same lines as you and share your heart and your vision. And uh, it's great to see that truly there is one holy Catholic and apostolic church all over the place, even in corrupt places like New York. I bring you greetings from Bishop Ed Gunger. I was able to spend a day and crashed at uh, the house with he and with Gail. And uh, we had a wonderful time visiting together and cooking up all sorts of wonderful things that we're going to do at Sanctuary. And there are great things afoot for us. And I got an amen from one of our vestry board members, but I'm going to say it again because everybody at 1115 is going to get on board when I say, there are great things afoot for sanctuary. Okay, come on, don't get too rowdy now. Get out of control. No, we have great things going. I know that uh, Brother Paul shared a letter from Pastor Brent and I. We both were playing hooky last week, but great things happening uh, in our community on practical and logistical levels as we've been pursuing uh, the possibility of relocating, and with that, we have some other logistical sort of scheduling things that we want to put on your radar, Um, and that is starting an Advent. Uh, Somebody came to me after the first service, and I used the word Advent um, in a way that confused them. I said, it will be the Advent, so there's a lot of Advent words here. December 3rd, Uh, We're planning to go to one Sunday morning service moving forward. And there are several reasons behind that um, that are very important. We're going to try to continue that into 2018. But I'm believing, I'm confident that this decision is one that is going to be strengthening. It's going to be encouraging. It's going to be a life-giving decision. It's one that has been made prayerfully and in conversation and a lot of consultation. I didn't wake up one morning and be like, you know what? I just want to do one. That's not what happened. And so we're very much looking forward to sharing more of those details. Come back next week. We hope to have a lot of good, specific, hard facts to share with you. So uh, we look forward to that. If you do have your Bible, I would invite you to open with me to Joshua chapter 24. The 24th chapter of Joshua is where I'll be preaching from this morning. Uh, Starting at verse 1, we kind of jump around a little bit. So let's start at 1 together, and then we'll go down to 14. So verse 1, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your ancestors, Terah and his sons Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Now go down to verse 14. Now, therefore, revere the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, if you are unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, 
Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our ancestors up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight. He protected us along all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and him we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made statutes and ordinances for them at Shechem. And this is the word of the Lord. I'm starting one of two messages here this morning that I've given a happy title, The Galling Generosity of God. And in our text this morning, Joshua begins by broaching the subject of idolatry. And it's very significant because... Whenever we use the word God, we have to be specific as to who exactly is this God whom we reference. So I started reading a book years ago by a chap named N.T. Wright. And he's a British New Testament scholar and was a big fat book. And as I'm reading the book, I noticed every time he mentioned God, it was with a lowercase g, with a little g. Being raised fundamentalist, you can sniff these things out and you start to wonder, does he really believe the right things? And after about 80 pages or so, I could take no more. I was about to burn the book like it should have been burned for its liberal contents. And Brother Wright, clearly reading my mail by the Holy Spirit's power, said, some of you may be wondering why I use a lowercase g to describe God. And I was like, oh, he's speaking to me. And what did he say? He said, I'm doing this not because I believe God's name is unworthy of a capital letter. I'm doing this because most of the time, the God we speak of when we say God is not the God of Scripture. He's the God of our own making. That alone was worth the price of admission. That alone was worth the price of the book because I felt incredibly convicted that There were times and ways I had unconsciously crafted this God to serve my own ends, which is really what Joshua gets at when he speaks about idols. You see, the God that Joshua has chosen to serve is not the idols of Abraham. Isn't that interesting that he pulls Abraham into this? Whew, that second verse. What does he say? He says, long ago your ancestors served other gods. 
Abraham was an idolater when God called him. And all of us idolaters said, amen, there's hope for us. You see, Joshua has chosen to serve Jehovah over and against, intentionally choosing him over and against the gods of Abraham and Nahor. He has chosen Jehovah over and against the gods that his own ancestors would have worshipped in Egypt. What we learn just even in this small passage is that Israel, the covenantal people of God, the children of Abraham, struggled mightily with idolatry. Even as we go into the future, we'll find that things such as the serpent, the bronze serpent that Moses raised up here in the wilderness. You remember that story? People had been bitten by all the poisonous snakes, and God told Moses to craft a serpent. When you go to 2 Kings chapter 18, you find that this serpent has now gotten a name. His name is Nehushtan. And this serpent is worshipped by the Hebrew people in Hezekiah's day centuries later. There's something to be heard in this text that should sober all of us, and that is this. You can be saved from sin. You can be set free from the slavery of the world and of Satan. You can go through your baptism of the Red Sea. You can receive a covenant at Sinai. You can even get through the Jordan and into the promised land, but still be an idolater. We have to remember, if I check, pretty sure, just confirming, yep, 24 is the last chapter in Joshua. Jericho has been taken. The promised land is theirs. And what does he have to say to them in the last chapter? Put away your idols. Put away your false gods. They have always struggled with this. I would like to draw your attention to the most glaring example of this. It's in Exodus 32. And we can jump over there together because I want to just draw your attention to a couple verses there. In Exodus 32, Moses has gone up to the mountain of God. And it says in the first verse that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Does anybody here struggle with patience besides me? Wave a hand so I can be encouraged this morning. I'm not the only one. Okay, I've been a week in New York, so I've been corrupted by that sort of horn-honking spirit. (laughs) The people saw that Moses was not coming back at the appropriate time frame. And so they gathered around Aaron. Well, let's get the next best guy. What do they say? Come, make gods for us. And I want to draw your attention to this next phrase. Who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. I loved that verse when I was a teenager and I wanted to get earrings in my ears. I thought for sure my dad would let me because we were fundamentalists and the Bible says this was okay. Uh, It didn't work. Uh, And he says, bring me your earrings. They took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel. But look at this, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So we see here that they're attributing the works of God to the works of idols. But I really want you to lean into this fifth verse here. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, look at this, tomorrow shall be a festival to 
the Lord. If you look at the text, that Lord there is all capitals. So what that means is that in the Hebrew, this is Jehovah. This is Yahweh. So in Aaron's mind and in the mind of the people, worshiping this golden calf was worshiping Yahweh. (laughs) See, there are two thoughts that I think could sort of transpose this story into our own key signature. Aside from the fact that it needs to be said, this is a free one that's not in the notes here, impatience is the breeding ground of idolatry. When God ceases to do things in our time frame, we have set ourselves up in that moment of frustration to craft an idol. Idolatry is not the attempt to get bad things. It is the attempt to get good things in our own timeline, in our own ways. It's always an attempt to gain control of a situation that we otherwise feel like we're out of control in. Where's Moses? And what what, what are they supposed to be doing? They're supposed to be going into the promised land. We're supposed to be a people on the move, and we're just sitting around at the base of this mountain. Did you notice why they wanted this idol? I'll reference you back to that first verse. They wanted someone who could go before them. They wanted leadership. Can we add a second free one in here that's not part of my notes? The lust for pragmatic leadership will almost always lead us to uh, to idolatry, which is adultery, so that maybe was a faux pas I didn't want to say right there. But two thoughts that I think are real helpful out of this story. Number one, they conflated this false image with Yahweh. It was their worship of him. And the second thought is, this was a God of pragmatism that had been fueled by and had been funded by God's blessing. Now let's think for a moment. What did Aaron ask them to contribute to this project? He asked them for their earrings. Well, we have to ask two questions. Did they have discretionary income when they were slaves for 430 years that they would have amassed a jewelry collection? Probably not. When you're wandering about the wilderness of sin, or zin, depending on the text, when you're wandering about, say, 1,000, 1,500 years B.C., Are there malls or jewelers or places where you could buy said earrings that Aaron is collecting? No. Where, in fact, do all of these Hebrews have these gold earrings to contribute? Well, if you go back to Exodus 12 and you look at verses 35 and 36, God says, on your way out of Egypt, ask the Egyptians for their stuff and they will give it to you. Why would they give it to them? Because they knew that the true God was with them. So the presence of the true God with the Hebrews unleashed this sort of financial abundance. I mean, I just had this image in my mind of Mr. T walking through the desert. They've got all this gold, and they're just they're overwhelmed with these riches from Egypt. That must have been spectacular. I mean, it's King Tut on parade through the wilderness, right? Who the blessing of God being used to fund our own idolatry. 
And so here's the question. Is it possible that in some, not all, but in some very visible instances, American Christians have done something very similar to this? We live in a nation of abundance. But we also live in a nation that loves pragmatism and loves productivity. We love things being done quickly and efficiently. We're the inventors of the drive through window. Chalk that up. Yes, somebody. We're going. We'll be out soon, I promise. But here's the thing. In our love of productivity and pragmatism, have we taken the earrings that are in our ears, the blessings of God, financially, I'm speaking literally financially, have we taken them and we've used them for a sort of worship that is akin to idolatry, not generosity? You see, the problem here is I cannot speak to a community about God with a capital G and about generosity without first naming this problem in the American church. And so today will be a happy sermon. Wink, wink. I'm guessing in Tulsa you've heard of something called the prosperity gospel. We heard of it back out in New York. Jesus made a very clear connection between wealth and idolatry. So interesting. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, you will all be familiar with this text. What does he say? He says, no one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. And here it comes. You cannot serve God and wealth. Boy, what, what do we do with this? Because he doesn't say God and Satan. He doesn't say God and sex. He doesn't say God and food. He says God and wealth. Mammon, a proper name in the Greek and Hebrew translations. And what do we do with the fact that he says this to a believing audience? He says this to the covenantal children of Abraham on a mountainside. He's not outside of Pilate's court saying, you cannot serve two masters, Pilate. No, He's not approaching the Roman centurion saying, you cannot, he's going to the people who worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's saying, you cannot do this. You have to choose. Sounds like Joshua, right? What concerns me is that the prosperity gospel has not so much presented wealth as a God, but it's presented God as wealthy. It hasn't presented, it's not so crass as to come to us and say, worship money. No, it says, worship a God who is defined by what he has. We will abuse texts, poetic texts taken out of the Psalms that ironically are used as an indictment against people who are offering sacrifices insincerely. And what does the psalmist say? He says, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. Friends, that is not a prosperity text. God is not sharing his portfolio with the Hebrews. Oh, when it comes to cattle, I've got a thousand. On a thousand hills, they're all, I promise you, I have them all. They're good. They're mine. He's not applying for a mortgage, trying to make sure that he can qualify. He's saying, I don't need your cows, your oxen, your bulls, because they're all mine. 
You see, wealth as a term is not so much just to define what we have, it's to define what we don't have. See, by saying somebody's worth a million dollars, I'm saying they don't have anything more than a million dollars. God can't be wealthy any more than God can exist. God doesn't exist because a person who exists can cease to exist. Existence is inside of God. God is not wealthy. He cannot be added to and he cannot be taken away from. And when we read our annual lists of the wealthiest people in the world, you ever notice they, they go up and down by tens of billions of dollars? I'm still where I was last year sometimes. <laughs> Hello? <laughs> right? Think about it. God is not like Bill Gates. He doesn't have a good year. Well, thank God, those people in sanctuary, they really showed out this year. Bumper crop. He can't be added to. He's not wealthy. And the thing is, think about it this way. If God is presented as wealthy, what is our, what, we're here to aspire to godliness. Which would mean we have to have a doctrine that somehow makes us wealthy because by making us wealthy, it makes us like God. And this is blasphemy. Did I say that strongly enough? This is wrong. This is profound error. Because at the very least, if God is wealthy, it means he is incapable of solidarity with the poor. This is not good news. This is not Jesus standing up in Luke 4 in the synagogue saying that he's come to bring good news to the poor, that he's come to set at liberty those who are... This is not good news. This is a rich God who really can't relate. But if God is neither wealthy nor poor and he transcends categories, suddenly he can have solidarity with all men and women regardless of whatever nation we live in, whatever time we live in. That is perhaps the God with a capital G. I believe that prosperity gospel strips that away and gives us a God with a little g. As I was preparing the sermon, I was thinking that it's not a coincidence that this year represents the 25th anniversary of that iconic movie, nay, film, we'll call it a film, Leap of Faith, starring Steve Martin. You might remember his category, uh, his character, the faith healer Jonas Nightingale with his sequin jacket and his big Rolex watch. And he would go from town to town plying his shtick, right, and the big tent revival. And it was all a scam. Well, why does Hollywood even make a movie like that? Why would they think there's an audience that would find that sort of mockery humorous and relevant? It's because sad to say, this sort of quote-unquote Christianity is pretty visible in our culture. There's a line in this movie that is, it's raw, but I think it's helpful. It's galling. Jonas Nightingale says, look, I run a show here. It's a lot of smoke and noise, and it's strictly for the suckers. And there's something about that that turns our stomach not when it's a movie, but when it's real life. I listed five galling items. For people who like lists, I'm going to give you a list this morning. If 
you don't like lists, just pretend and we'll get through it. Goaling item number one, I feel like this sort of prosperity teaching and prosperity doctrine promotes giving to get. And in doing so, it reduces our offerings to little more than a spiritual stock market. And in the end, we're not giving anything at all. At best, we're investing, and at worst, we're gambling. And friends, I would submit to you that any preacher who gets up and says, sow your seed today, and you will get 30, 60, or 100 fold by the end of the year, that's not giving. That's not giving. That's investing in a stock market. Second galling item for me. The claim that material abundance is equated with spiritual maturity or strong faith. That somehow, if my checkbook has a certain number in it, or my driveway has a certain car in it, or my house is in a particular neighborhood, that clearly it's because I have a certain level of faith or Christian maturity and I'm able to perceive certain things. And God is just giving that to me so I can be a, 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 a provocateur in the culture and people will walk up to me and say, how did you get so rich? Because that's what people say all the time. No, no. We all know, it's almost cliche to say it, but we all know that the greatest among us are the least. And that, my friends, does not jibe with this sort of teaching. Galling item number three for me is that this is a doctrine that is often used, not always, but often used to pray, not with an A, but with an E, to pray on the weak, the vulnerable, and the desperate. It's been reported that Christian television stations get more than two-thirds of their donations come in denominations of 10 and $20 to the tune of hundreds of, millions in uh, hundreds of millions of dollars over the years. And it doesn't come from people who have discretionary money and they're writing one, five, and $10,000 checks. It comes from grandmothers dipping into Social Security. It comes from a young couple who doesn't know how they're going to pay their rent, and they heard a preacher say, if it doesn't meet your need, it's a seed. And so they took that last $400 and they put it in an offering and then they get an eviction letter a few weeks later. Something about this should gall us to the depths of our being. Galling item number four. This expression of Christianity seems to be the most visible one in America. It's very upsetting to me because our churches are filled, and I'm speaking specifically about sanctuary with wonderful men and women who are not manipulative, not greedy, and very generous. And we can find them all over our cities, all over our country, but we can't find them all over our TV screens. And galling item number five, this doctrine, I believe, has been the source of a reactionary mindset in the church. It's a reactionary mindset that says, God would never ask me for that. God would never get into my checkbook. God would never get into my calendar. God would never poke around and put me in an uncomfortable position. 
God loves a cheerful giver, which means if I'm happy to do it, I do it. And if I'm not happy, I'm not going to do it. And why do we think that way? Why do we get nervous? Why do I sense two months ago, you've got to talk about generosity. And I say, God, I'm not talking about generosity to anybody. Because what preacher wants to get up in a pulpit in front of a room full of wise, insightful people and say, God wants your cash. He wants your time. He wants your talents. He wants your affections. And check this out. He actually thinks he's entitled to all of those things. It's galling to me that I think as a reaction to horrible doctrine, we find ourselves being so bold as to say no to God. That somehow God's not allowed to put his finger on this part of our lives. There was a man named Abraham Kuyper who was a reformed theologian, a bit of a renaissance man. He started a denomination of churches in the Netherlands, was also their prime minister, uh, 19th century character. And he said this, it's not an exact quote, I didn't give it to the guys to put on the screen, but he says there's not one square inch of the universe over which Jesus Christ does not say mine. Very un-American of Jesus. And so I think this feels like a little bit of a perfect storm. On the one hand, we have a deeply embedded American consciousness that says our right given to us by our creator is life, liberty, and property. They adapted it. Pursuit of happiness was because political concerns. But. And this deeply American uh, idea of personal property, private property, combined with an understandable righteous indignation to the, uh, at the idolatry of the prosperity gospel. I think it's left us at risk. I think it's really left us as Christians at risk because preachers don't know how to talk about these things and we don't know how to feel about these things when preachers talk about them. Because everybody's nervous. Everybody's like, wait, where's my wallet? The app isn't open, is it? Please, I don't want to hit a wrong button here. Nobody is sowing seed today. No offerings are being extra ones. See, I think the risk that we run here in this storm is that in an effort to play it safe, we close off our hearts. In an effort to avoid being duped by the slick preacher in the sequin jacket or the vest, we close off our hearts. We turn ourselves in on ourselves. And this is because treasure is powerfully and indissolubly linked to our hearts. You cannot separate the two. You cannot separate your treasure from your heart. And this is why it smells demonic to me. All the false teaching around money, all the false teaching around, it just smells demonic to me because last time I checked, God is love. Is that fair enough? God is love. I don't think I'm saying anything risky there. And the essence of love is giving. And I don't mean money, per se. Just giving, openness, generosity. For God so loved, he gave. 
Well, if suddenly giving and generosity and openness, and was it risky for God to send his son? Was it risky to entrust this work to us? If suddenly I'm so concerned about being taken advantage of and I'm so concerned about the risk, I stop the giving. If I stop the giving, on some level, I'm affecting the loving. And we were made to love. I'm not saying there's an easy way forward, but I'm saying it's unacceptable to just stay in the same place and be guarded and to be thinking, oh, nobody's going to dupe me. If we go back a few verses earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, hear these famous words. You know them. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up, look at this next phrase, for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. And here's the key. For where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. Wow. So let's just clarify up front. Jesus makes these remarks on the heel of three sermonettes. The first sermonette says, when you give. The second sermonette, when you pray. And the last sermonette, when you fast. That one we don't really want to pay attention to. Anyway, what is he talking about? He's talking about giving money, clearly giving your time into spiritual activity, prayer, and denying yourself comforts and sustenance that is necessary for life. It's literally on the heels of that that he says, do not store up for yourself treasures and And he concludes with this powerful idea. And the powerful idea is the opposite of what I think is intuitive to us. He doesn't say, your treasure will follow your heart. He says, your heart will follow your treasure. Where your treasure is. What tense is that? Thank you. Gold star. Interactive service this morning, saints. Where your treasure is, look at this. There your heart, what's the next two words? Will be. And that is what tense? Future. Your heart will be there also. In other words, your treasure is going to be like, oh, glad you got here. It's because we understand what the nature of treasure is. When any person in this room who has the the grace on them and the privilege on them to have some sort of a job that provides some sort of an income, here's the deal. When you get a paycheck, that paycheck, it is in exchange for your physical person being present to a specific task and bringing to bear your physical health, your mental well-being, your education, your skill set, and your aptitudes, and they say in exchange for you, I'll give you this money. So when God is looking at our money, he's not looking at it like, ooh, $1,000. He's looking at it saying, ooh, Josiah. That's what he's looking at it. 
Ooh, yes, this is the person. Your heart follows that. I want to delineate a couple things here. And I want to recalibrate a couple things here. Anything that hints at the manipulation and the furthering of the American dream that would be a two-story house and a two-car garage and a picket fence and all that, anything that hints at that is not gospel. It doesn't preach in all places and at all times. Imagine taking a prosperity sermon to India. Doesn't work. I've been there and watched the guy preach it. It doesn't work. You know what works? Jesus Christ and him crucified works in every place and in every time. That works. If you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But you give it up for my case and the gospel, you'll find it. That works in every place. And it works whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're black, you're white, you're a man. It works. It's truth. It's God with a big G. But I want to recalibrate us because I want us to think differently. The fact is the God that we serve, the true God, is not a golden calf that somehow we can just feed our gold earrings to and somehow he'll get us where we think we need to be just faster. But neither is the true God a distant, deist sort of deity who's not concerned about your money and not concerned about your time and not trying to say, Mark, I want to go there. He does that. I want us to be recalibrated in such a way that we can be liberated, we can be set free from our slavery to wealth, to mammon, to materialism. I want us to see that there is a way that we can actually move our hearts deeper into the kingdom of heaven where Jesus reigns in power. And I love that idea that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also because it ties in beautifully to what our text in Joshua said. In verse 23 of that last chapter, hear these words again from Joshua, Yeshua. Put away the foreign gods that are among you, mammon, and incline your hearts to the Lord. Putting the gods away with the movement of inclining our hearts to the Lord is where life is found abundantly, where peace is found, contentment is found. This is not a pathway to more, more, more. I go back, I told you all it was my favorite verse in the Bible. The horse leech has two daughters, give and give. And if our preaching reinforces the horse leech and the daughters of the horse leech, we've got a problem. But it seems to me that the New Testament writer says what? That godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, I come to you through the name of your son, Jesus. And I thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. I pray for every person 
who's hearing this message this morning, that there would be a fresh touch of heaven on our hearts and on our minds to open up ourselves to you. That we would not allow, we would refuse to let false teaching, false ideas, demonic voices somehow encroach into our hearts and minds to close us off, to, to, to guard us to the point where we're not loving and we're not open. But God, we also don't want to reinforce this manipulative sort of golden calf mentality. Help us, we pray. Move forward, walking in the steps of Jesus, who emptied his very self out, Paul told us. God, help us to to move towards that, to have this mind which is ours in Christ Jesus. For the glory of his name we ask it. Amen.